Welcome to Drinks with Defenders. I'm Addie B. Plate. And I'm Kayla Murphy. We're two law school friends turned criminal defense attorneys turned podcast hosts. We're here in this space because we now work in separate offices and miss collaborating with each other. We've been talking about creating a podcast for years where we talk about the complexities of the criminal justice system, the aspects of it that we grapple with, and the importance of what we do. At the end of a long work week, we want to sit down, have a drink with each other, and talk about the rabbit holes of criminal defense, just like we always have. So let's get into it. Cheers. Hello, welcome to Drinks with Defenders. I'm Kayla and uh, Addie, how you doing? I am doing okay. How are things going in your neck of the woods? Oh man, it's been pretty rough actually. I started doing felonies and juvenile work and it's been a freaking shit show and I've been feeling overwhelmed and stupid and it's been hard. Um, I know that you called me <laughs> when you, I know that you called me when you found out that you got me bumped up to felonies and I'm just going to say it again so that, I mean, I told you the first time, but you know, if and when we ever go back and listen to these podcasts, like you are wildly capable and you're now in the big leagues. And with that comes a lot of responsibility and it's super overwhelming, but you know, this is what you wanted to do and now you're doing it. And I'm, I'm really proud of you. And on the bad days, like it's still you living the fucking dream, right? It's still when it's the bad day, it's still you're having a bad day in the dream. And that's fucking cool. So um the dream is kind of a I, nightmare sometimes, Addie. It really is. I know. And <laughs> you know what? Taylor Swift said that she's a nightmare is just like a daydream. So if Taylor Swift Isn't is that a nightmare, the fucking truth, dude. Our job can be nightmares too. And it it <sighs> well is said. even when it's even when it's a nightmare, it's still the dream. And and I'm just really proud of you. And um yeah, that's real. And I appreciate you you kind of coming back to that because I think I've told everybody that this job is really fun and it's really not fun sometimes. And this is the not fun part. I'm Honestly, a little bit relieved that it's you that's going through the like shit show because the last few time episodes it's been me because I'm the new attorney. <laughs> so now you're coming in with a hot experience of you kind of being in new new waters and it, it feels great. like and that all me. over again, but actually worse somehow. I'm so sorry to hear that. It's okay, well, dude. I mean, I'm coming down from the panic. It was really intense though for at least a week. You, you had so a many whole so anxiety. much. Yeah, it was horrible. I don't I don't want to just expose you, but you had a whole anxiety attack. <laughs> and I think that's fair to yeah. say. And I just remember I got like this most the most unhinged text message from you. No context, <laughs> just the most unhinged text message. And I was just like <laughs> I was like, I don't even know how to respond. So I just called and I left you a voicemail and I didn't hear from you for like three days. <laughs> like No, I was in a depression. She's down bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm 
maybe that's what this podcast is good for us just coming and laughing Ugh. through the the mess but but anyways, i love you so- and i yeah i appreciate you being like supportive and being there for me even when i was like in my deep hit of you know little hole of self isolation um yeah always. that's a true friend <laughs> Always. Even when and you don't have like the mental ability to be a good friend to yourself, like, you know, you've always been there for oh, me. And we've been that way for each other. And I think that's a huge part of why we're able to be doing what we're doing and a big part of why we're sharing this space. And I mean, we talked about this. If anybody wants to know about how we leaned on each other, go back to episode zero. The story's there. But um origin we, story. Origin story. But we've been that way for each other. And you know, again. Thank you for bringing this, starting this podcast on the real, on the real note. Um, pivoting, I think that we have some really good stuff in store tonight and we get to also share space with another one of my favorite people, which is a big part of why we do this podcast. And it's to bring kind of the fun back to what we do. Um, I invited my brother onto the podcast. He is um, an anesthesiologist that is, he's currently in his fellowship. So um, he did his undergrad uh, at the University of San Diego. He went to medical school in the Caribbean at Trinity College of Medicine. I think I got that right, which is on the island of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. I really appreciate adding that to the story because I think it's really cool. Um, similar to law school, I think doctors oftentimes get told that if you go a certain direction, you won't be super successful. And I think a big part of his story is that he got told that if he were to go to medical school in the Caribbean, he wouldn't have a super successful career in the United States. And he's a living testament of that not being true. Um, he landed uh, a residency at um, Cook County in Chicago for anesthesia. Anesthesia is one of the hardest residencies to get. I'm really proud of him for for becoming an anesthesiologist. And then um, also to just add to his whole, you know, aspect of why he's so cool and why I appreciate him so much is that a couple years ago I was in law school and I was it was the pandemic and I had a study room in the in the law school because I needed to get out of my house and I am um, neurodivergent so the law school allowed for me to have a study room at the at the law school to continue to study and I was there and I was on the phone with my brother and he called me and was like talking about how he was having to make a decision what to do because his, his residency was going to be ending and he wasn't sure if he should just apply for jobs or if he should apply for a fellowship, which is like another year of school. And he was afraid that he wouldn't get a fellowship. And um, so I was in the middle of law school feeling like I was an absolute imposter, feeling like I wasn't good at it and having to give him the pep talk that I, you know, similar to what I give you. And I was like, well, it's okay for somebody else to tell you no, but it's not really okay to tell yourself no, uh, that you can't do something. So just try. And Addie, um, stop. I love that. I, I love that. Yeah. I've not heard that before. I feel that's kind of the mantra in terms of how I live my life. Like it's one thing I can have somebody else tell me no and that I can't do something, but I will not tell myself that. And I told him that. And he then applied to all these different um, fellowships and he landed his fellowship at the University of Florida and uh, he is so like he's um, subspecialized in anesthesia and he does a lot with like regional anesthesia and acute pain management um, and that's where he's at now and he will be finishing that I believe this summer so he 
has created huge footsteps for me to try to fill. And he's just a very cool, hot, cookie-cutter doctor, kind of similar to how we're not cookie-cutter attorneys. And I just think that his story is so beautiful and, and just very reminiscent of of kind of us. Like you shared on this podcast that you were not the student that was on track to become an attorney. And I was the law student that was not on track to graduate, right? Like, and look, we're doing it. So um, it's really cool that I get to watch somebody else who a big part of me being successful was having this person. And then now in his area of like where he's at now, I got to kind of return the favor and be like, no, like it's your turn to like tell yourself that you can do hard shit. So, um, Hell yeah. and, and now we're here. And so I'm really happy that he agreed to join because I think this is totally not his scene, but, um, he, he really cares. And he, I think is just fascinated by the fact that we wanted to have him on. So, um, and he's on call. So big shout out to him for just wanting to be here in this space when he has a lot of other shit on his plate. Um, I also really appreciate and respect that. And before we jump in that into the episode and the interview, Addie, what are we drinking this week? So I asked my brother what he wanted the drink to be. He's, he's our first guest on the podcast. So I feel like that would be the respectful thing. I think sometimes you don't have a party and bring a guest and be like, oh, you're drinking this and you they might not like it. So it's like, that's a party foul to bring our first guest and like, hey, you're drinking what we choose. I felt like that was a bad precedent to start. So he's on call. So he technically can't drink alcohol. But if there's one thing about Sean Beasley, it's the Batman like tequila. Um, so he was like, we're drinking something with tequila. If there's another thing about Sean Beasley, it's that he is ridiculously bougie in ways that he does not need to be. And lately he's on a cactus, <laughs> he's on a cactus water kick. And so he was oh, like, I want to have, I can't have alcohol. So I want cactus water <laughs> because he got into it. Apparently it's more hydrating than like regular water, even coconut water. He's a doctor. Like, okay. He is a doctor. So he was like, I'll have like a little mocktail. So he was having a mocktail. He was like, I'll have a mocktail of coconut water and limeade and like the ingredient for a margarita stands tequila, which he was sad about. Um, and so I told him that I would match that and add tequila. Um, so <laughs> I also appreciate that he did a fun version of a mocktail. I understand that not all of our listeners are going to be people who drink alcohol. And that's totally cool. You can still come and kick it with us um, and do a fun mocktail or whatever you want to drink. And guess what? Sean B. Plate did it on here first. So you are in great company. Trendsetter. Trendsetter. So uh, my version has um, Patron tequila in it. Um, and then I also have limeade. I use Simply Limeade because that, that stuff is delicious. I couldn't find cactus water because Northern Idaho has not caught up to his standards. <laughs> so I only found coconut water. But I like coconut water if it has the actual pieces of coconut in it. I think it's sweeter. Um, and so his, I think he put agave in his mocktail to kind of sweeten it a little bit. Um, my coconut water was sweet, so I didn't add another sweetener. And then I... Um, decided to go the extra mile and actually blend mine. Um, so I had the blended margarita and I did salt around the rim because I do like a salted margarita glass. And that is what we're drinking. He's not the only bougie bee plate. He is not the only bougie bee plate. And don't you forget it. So, <laughs> but hey, you know, sometimes the extra touch on a, on a cocktail can just make you feel better about elevated 100 yeah, exactly i do feel like it's just a little self-care moment 
fuck yeah, I, I assaulted my boss. Why not? <laughs> so uh, cheers Incredible. to that. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into the interview. podcast, I invited my brother, who's also a very close friend of mine, to come and talk to us you know, about his side of work in terms of dealing with fentanyl. I think kind of in conversations with Kayla, and I want your opinion on this before I pass it over to um, my brother and have him kind of jump in from a different direction. I think that a big thing that we were thinking in terms of fentanyl is it really does seem like the next kind of wave of the war on drugs. And it really seems like that's going to be just what's really hit hard and prosecuted hard in our profession. And you and I both kind of came at it from the mindset of, I think people are a little bit alarm- alarmist, but all comes up and people get really scared. And we wanted to just kind of, to use your words back at you, Kayla, demystify that. And, and so I want your opinions on that before we, we turn it over. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I'm really excited to learn more about this from your brother, who you have spoken highly of for the last six years that I've known you. I feel like I know you, John, with like how <laughs> he talks about you and how much he admires you. So I mean, it really is an honor to meet you. Oh, thank you. Um, so just jumping off here, um, fentanyl, I mean, my. <laughs> Elementary understanding is that it is one of the leading causes of death for people under 40. I think I saw a statistic that it's killed somewhere around 450,000 Americans. Can you tell us a little bit more about fentanyl? Just like, what is it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so fentanyl is a, uh, it's an opioid. Uh, So it's, um, in the same class, and when I say opioid, I, you know, I apologize. So with the asterisk of I, anytime that I realize that things that I talk about very, that things to me that seem very casual, like casual conversation that I have at work, that then also I realize that, oh, when I, you know, things outside of, you know, when I'm at work and talking to people that aren't, you know, work in a hospital every day, so that if I say anything that needs to be clarified, please let me know. Like, I realize that even Med- casual medical convert like language is not always super well and you know not everybody's casual conversation so please if i you know if something doesn't make sense or if i use a term or something that please stop me and i'll explain what i mean so but it's in the by an opioid it's in the same class of medication um and drugs as other opioids so things like um oxycodone and oxycontin and morphine and hydromorphone these are all uh, opioids. Uh, they all work on the same kinds of receptors. All of them are were derived from some are natural, uh, naturally occurring opioids that have been uh, synthesized from the the you know the same plants that produced uh, opium. Um, whereas some others are have been are synthetic, meaning you know man made, but they work on the same kinds of receptors. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Okay. Does our body produce opioids naturally at all? Or do you just mean they're naturally occurring like in the world through like the opium plants? Yeah, naturally occurring in the world. Uh, opioids are not, um, opiates are not something that are 
that our body makes and secretes. Um, we have receptors for them, but it's not something that uh, that is made within the body. I was going to say, we should probably back up and talk about why I asked you to come on this podcast and talk about fentanyl because I didn't really know what fentanyl was. I, I will tell, I'll tell this podcast, the first time I ever heard about fentanyl, our mom was freaking out about fentanyl because you're around it every single day. And mom was like freaking out about your exposure to fentanyl. And I think she had this idea that physicians were potentially abusing fentanyl. And, and I remember, and, and I want you to explain your you know, background and your, and your job, but I remember you were saying that you work with fentanyl every single day and you go to work and you have vials of it on you every single day. Yeah, and, yeah. and I was just like, okay, contrast that from now how I'm hearing about fentanyl every single day in my work. Those are two very different things. And so I was kind of wanting you to lay some foundation in terms of just like explaining fentanyl's clinical use and purpose and kind of your thoughts from the, an outside perspective, not in like the legal profession, but in a profession that really interacts with fentanyl, how you see this issue. Okay. Um, so I'm the reason why I've been asked to speak is I am, um, I just, I'm in the last year of my medical training I'm doing. So I, uh, last year I finished my anesthesiology residency and I am doing an additional year of training. Um, I am doing a fellowship in, uh, regional anesthesiology and acute pain, man acute and perioperative pain management. So, uh, I deal with, I, fentanyl is something that, um, you know, anesthesiologists use every single day. Um, and in multiple situations, uh, both pre someone have say someone, somebody's having surgery, um, and we use it prior to somebody going, you know, prior to surgery, during surgery, after surgery. And I can kind of go through my, you know, maybe examples of how I use it. Probably it should, I should maybe start with, uh, anesthesiologists are, we like to use medications that are uh, rapid onset, short duration of action. Um, and this is because we are, as you are taking care of a patient um, prior to putting somebody to sleep for surgery or while they're asleep during surgery or in the recovery area, you like to use medications that are going to um, have an effect right away because we are, you know, we are altering patients' physiology we are wanting to treat pain and every, these kinds of things, you know, in, in the moment. And we are also, we're not wanting to use medications that have a long lasting effect. And that's so kind of in general medications that anesthesiologists use typically kind of fall into this profile. Fentanyl specifically, uh, we will use like pretty much anybody that has had surgery. I mean, in the past, whenever I forget when fentanyl was first, uh, I, I would have to look in, and remind myself when fentanyl first was um, was synthesized, like when it first became a medication that was, you know, uh, made. But ever since, so at least within the past, I'm going to guess, and I'd have to once again look into this, but probably anybody that's had surgery at least within the past 15, 20 years has had, has been given fentanyl. Um, and this is, and I can kind of go through the reasons why. So, um, actually maybe the best is our examples of when I use it. I'm not sure if that's the 
most helpful. Um, so yeah, it's go for it. fentanyl, fentanyl, it's, it's an opioid medication. So it is, uh, opioid receptors. There are, there's, um, different opioid receptors in the body and different of these receptors have different effects. Um, opioids are, uh, pain, you know, there are pain, part of the receptors produce analgesic, you know, they treat pain. Um, but they also have, uh, opioid receptors can also produce, um, a sedating effect. They can cause some euphoria. Um, and then they also cause the thing that's scary about them is that they can cause respiratory depression. Uh, anesthesiologists, in addition to the fact that, uh, you know, and we like fentanyl because it is among opioid medications. It is one that is, has a rapid onset, meaning, uh, you, the effects start to take place within a couple minutes of administering the medication. And then it doesn't have a prolonged effect, uh, meaning within a couple hours, typically in most patients, the effects, uh, the duration of action should have come to an end. And fentanyl doesn't have some other medications in the same class as fentanyl will have, uh, as they're metabolized and broken down, some of these, some other medications will have those uh, products that result from it breaking down also have kind of the similar effects themselves, whereas fentanyl gets broken down and the, what the products it gets broken down to don't have, don't have effects. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. So like residual effects, you mean? Or no, meaning that, um, uh, that when it's, uh, the, the products of the, the medication, when it, you know, it gets broken down, it, when I say that they have effects too, that those products then will have similar effects to the original drug. Like it also, it, uh, that the effects also have activity, like pharmacologic activity, and that will work in a similar manner. Whereas fentanyl gets broken down to, and its products don't work, that don't have the same, the same results. Does that make sense now? Yes. Okay. So it is used frequently, um, in all kinds of surgeries, uh, even for, if you're not having a major surgery, um, and you're having a procedure done that maybe a little bit of sedation is all that's needed or even heavier sedation, but not general anesthesia. Um, we use fentanyl frequently, um, to produce some of the the sedating effects. Um, and it's often given in combination with other medications to kind of produce, um, like, a that amplify those effects. So I guess maybe some of the best examples, if I kind of go maybe in the course of my day as an anesthesiologist, like where I would use it might be the most helpful. Yeah. So, right. So right now, uh, if we, if I'm doing a procedure, so I will, uh, right now I do a part of the, the fellowship that I'm in, we do a lot of procedures to help with pain after surgery. Um, and these procedures are, we'll do nerve blocks where we, you know, numb up somebody's arm or somebody's leg to help with, you know, if they're having a painful surgery to give them some relief, uh, some pain relief after surgery. Um, or we'll do, where we place like an epidural similar to when women are giving birth, but we can use epidurals as well to help with pain after surgeries. Um, I will use fentanyl during, um, while we're during the actual performing the procedure, because, uh, these procedures, they can be, you know, for most of them, I am placing needles through skin that can be a little 
you know, they're small needles, so they shouldn't be super painful, but it, it's, it, patients get very anxious, you know, the parts of the procedure can be kind of stimulating. And so I will, we often use fentanyl, um, and frequently in combination with, um, a medication, uh, like a benzodiazepine, uh, which is the medications that are in the same class as Xanax will give small doses, um, to produce some, you know, to keep patients, um, kind of lightly sedated, um, reduce their anxiety and the stimulating parts of the procedure that can be a little bit painful to help with that. Um, we give fentanyl for these procedures. We give it, patients have an IV. So we're giving the, we're giving the fentanyl through the IV. So that's one, you know, done just to produce some sedation for kind of smaller procedures. I just have a question. Um, yeah. When you are giving like a dose of fentanyl mm-hmm. to somebody, yeah. what is that? Like what is in a typical dose of when you're giving like somebody fentanyl and administering that, how much mm-hmm. fentanyl are you giving them? And how do oh, you okay. come to that conclusion? Okay. So typically for what the kind of the indication, what I was just mentioning, we will, I'll probably start with maybe 25 or 50 micrograms of fentanyl um, and give additional doses during the procedure in increments like that. Um, I determine how much to give somebody uh, kind of there's different things that you have to take into consideration. You take into consideration their age. Older patients are more sensitive to medications like this. Um, You also take into consideration um, the, I ask my patients about their substance use history, you know, how much alcohol they drank, any other recreational substances. Um, and not from a judgment standpoint, but all of these affect both your pain tolerance as well as how tolerant you are to medications that can be, you know, sedating. And um, so I factor that gets factored in as well. And then uh, also, you know, you take into consideration if somebody, sometimes people, you know, if they're going for an emergent surgery, they might have, you know, they might have come in acutely intoxicated or, um, you know, if they are, they've been in the hospital and receiving some other medication that could have caused them to be a little, so if they, if I see them that, you know, and I'm about to take care of them and they seem a little sedated or something already, you know, and I, or can tell that they've been receiving medications while in the hospital that can also sedate them or, um, you know, produce some of these other effects, I'll take that into consideration too. when I determine how much that I want to give. Does that, was that, did that answer your question? Yeah. Do you factor in weight to a person? To, to an extent, like it's not a, I, it's not like a, um, people that are smaller, I'm going to give less to right off the bat, but I don't, it's not like a, this person weighs this much. I'm going to immediately give, you know, there are there are, you know, there are dosing, uh, there's, you know, kind of a range of, of dose, but I don't, I don't sit and think, you know, like, and it's you with, with experience, you kind of figure out, you kind of have an idea of how much you think is the right. And, and I always start a little bit more conservative, give a little bit less because you can always give more. So what would happen if somebody wasn't honest with you about their substance use and they were a regular user of opioids or fentanyl? would it just take more medication for them to feel the effects? And if they weren't honest with you, would there be indicators on your end that they would need more? Yeah. So if somebody is, and often, you know, I have, I'm able to see, you know, 
I, when I review my patients, I can see the medications that they're on. Um, you know, if they're prescribed opiates as outpatient, but you know, not everybody's not everybody's honest, and people take medications that aren't listed. Um, if somebody was the thing with with uh, opioids is if somebody is a chronic user of them, um, they it mess you over time. Um, you can develop tolerance, and you actually, um, you know, your it over time your uh, there are alterations that you know your your recept your it messes with your receptor pathways, and so over time, if somebody's a chronic opioid user, they will become more tolerant, um, and they will have increased requirements of to produce the same effect that somebody who is naive to opioids. The, uh, that you know has maybe never taken them before, or only in small amounts. So over time, somebody that is is a chronic user would require more. I have a question. Yeah. Um, in terms of, okay, so I think first of all, I think I cut you off in talking about your normal day. So you use it in a reco- in like recovery from surgery setting. Or I, so I would in- use it. I would use it for uh, so for procedures. Um, and when right. I say procedures, that can range range from the kind of small procedures that I was just talking about, or all the way through um, when patients are maybe undergoing um, things like that are a little bit more invasive, like a colonoscopy or something. Sometimes opioids will be used as part of the to produce um, to you know, some sedation and to um, you know. Co- Colonoscopy is not something that's particularly painful, but a very stimulating procedure. And so something that can be used as well as part of the medications for that procedure. If I am in the working in the operating room and I'm going to be putting somebody under general anesthesia, um, I will use, I often will give a little bit of fentanyl as I'm putting somebody to sleep um, because uh, when we're putting somebody to sleep under general anesthesia and I'm putting in a breathing tube to secure their airway and connect them to the ventilator to uh, during surgery where we take over the control for of the patient's breathing and, and securing the airway. Um, that part where you, after somebody has been put to sleep and then you put the breathing tube in, that part can be particularly um, stimulating. And so I will give a little bit of fentanyl prior to putting to somebody to sleep to reduce the physiologic uh, response to something that can be so stimulating um, because you don't want somebody's blood pressure to jump up super sky high while you're putting in the breathing tube. Um, and then also, it, like I mentioned before, um, that part when you have somebody in the operating room before they go to sleep, people can get very anxious. You know, The fentanyl can help with that too. And then throughout surgery, uh, while somebody is asleep under general anesthesia, there is, of course, there's the whole debate about whether or not can people feel pain while they're under general anesthesia, which that is something that is kind of beyond the scope of this. But there are parts of surgeries that can still be very stimulating. And I uh, will often give these kind of small doses of fentanyl um, throughout surgery during parts that might be more stimulating, or if it seems like the patient might be feeling, or they might be responding to something that the surgeon's doing. Um, and then lastly, often in the recovery area, after somebody's recovering from surgery, patients will receive fentanyl to help with pain in the recovery area. And like I mentioned, we like it because it is something that has a quick onset and then short duration of action. 
quick question. Sorry, I just wanted to, for clarification purposes, can yeah. you just give some, um, like, give some definition to like what the context when you say like something is stimulating? Like, I know that you mentioned that like their blood pressure oh, might go up yeah, or they're sure. feeling anxious, but can you just define that for us? Oh yeah. So when we when I say that something's stimulating, um, especially like during surgery, because you you have patient like you have a patient that is um, under general anesthesia. And you can't tell, you know, that you can't ask them, hey, is this hurting you? Is this bothering you? But you might see changes where their heart rate will increase or their blood pressure will increase or both will happen at the same time. And you might have some, some and then you also look over the, the drape and look and see what the, the sur- you know, what part of the surgery is going on. And you can have a, a good idea of, hey, this is probably something that even though my patient is completely asleep, there is still some kind of stimulating response happening. And so that's when I, when I say that something's stimulating, like during surgery, um, when I'm talking about procedurally before where like the patient's awake, um, you know, like if I'm about to do a nerve block, of course, like the part where I first stick my needle through somebody's skin, like that's going to be a little bit stimulating. Um, totally off topic. I'm sorry, but now I'm like so curious. Yeah. Have you like personally heard horror stories of people who have like had these terrible pain sensations while they've been out for a surgery? Uh, no. So the, um, there are, I, there are patients that will, I mean, intraoperative, there are, there is a, there is a real thing where, uh, intraoperative, we will call intraoperative recall where patients will, um, uh, under general anesthesia, will be able to recall events usually they'll the things that's most common is they'll remember they'll say oh i could remember hearing things or you know kind of what was go you know being spoken but it's a very rare occurrence um and there's a couple kinds of surgeries that often occurs more during and that's often like um maybe like if somebody's having has been in a traumatic accident or something and is having an emergency surgery because often Oftentimes in these kinds of surgeries, uh, they are, um, there are situations where it might be general anesthesia causes responses that can get causes basically like your blood vessels to dilate and it in itself can cause blood while you're under most people under general anesthesia, their blood pressure is going to come down surgeries that already predispose people to having their blood pressure being really low, like a big traumatic surgery where they might've bled a bunch or something like that. And if you're, it might be a situation where it's kind of, you're trying to give the patient the minimal amount of anesthesia because it's, you're trying like to keep it safe and not, you know, their blood pressure. So those are the kind of situations where these stories come from. And it is, it is a known thing. It's extremely rare though, like extremely rare. There are patients that will talk about, oh, I was having this done and I woke up. And that's often, like I was talking about, things like colonoscopies or whatnot, where it might not be general anesthesia. There's kind of a, there's, there's a whole spectrum from sedation all the way down through to general anesthesia. And these other procedures like colonoscopies kind of throughout the procedure, you're kind of, as you're, you know, keeping the patient, trying to keep them, you know, comfortable and you're kind of, you, you may not know exactly where you are on the spectrum of general, you know, you're in that situation, you're not wanting them to be under general anesthesia because general anesthesia usually means that you're having to 
you know, help take control of their airway. If they, these other procedures they'll talk about, oh, I woke up. Well, it's not like you were in the operating room having surgery under. So does that make sense? It's kind of these events where, where it's like very heavy sedation that you're kind of, and the anesthesiologist is throughout the, throughout the procedure, you're kind of constantly titrating the amount of medication that you're giving the patient. And they'll, it's kind of, their consciousness might kind of wax and wane a little bit. So, um, but true, like I was having big surgery and I remember parts, that part's extremely, that those things are extremely rare. It, like true, and that's called like true intraoperative recall is a very, very rare thing. And it's, it's often, I think most commonly, it's like, like I mentioned, like trauma surgeries. I have a question. You yeah. mentioned, it, it's fascinating. You mentioned something about what's scary with fentanyl from your perspective being the respiratory compressions. Oh, but yeah. Can you explain what that is? So all opioids, part of the, the receptors that they have uh, are one of the responses is uh, decreased, um, decreased ventilatory and respiratory drive, meaning your um, the natural response to and things that trigger your your natural breathing and the uh, opioids depress that. Um, the reason why that I say that that's scary, uh, from my standpoint, when I am giving somebody fentanyl, either you know while prior to them having surgery, if I'm doing a procedure or they're in the recovery area, for me administering it it's not scary for i mean you have you're constant i mean that's part of being an anesthesiologist is that you're constantly monitoring your patient but i i know that this is what can this is what fentanyl does and anesthesiologists are extremely comfortable i mean we're comfortable giving patients medications that can reduce their their you know when you put somebody to when you put somebody to sleep you're uh, frequently, depending on the medications you use, but you're frequently, you put them to sleep and you, they aren't breathing themselves. And you put in, you know, you're, you do that and you put in the breathing tube and you take, you're taking over control for the breathing. So as an anesthesiologist, somebody very experienced with sedation and managing airways. And, you know, when you, when I am, you bag somebody, you know, you're, you use mat, you know, we use masks to, to, and, and bags to, to, you know, you're, you're used to breathing for your patient. So therefore, when you give medication that can potentially reduce somebody's respiratory drive or make them completely stop breathing, you're, I'm comfortable with that because I know what to do if somebody stops breathing. I know how to stimulate them to try to, you know, okay, let's, let's bring their respiratory drive back. Uh, you know how to manage their airway. And then you also know, you know, when you when you need to take over their airway, put in the breathing tube and breathe for the patient. So why I say it's scary is that it is in it's scary if somebody is not in a monitored setting, taking, you know, it it but here in the settings where I'm using fentanyl, I'm either right there with the patient myself, the patient's under general anesthesia. I have a, a breathing tube already in place. Like I don't have to, you know, I can give them and it doesn't matter that like, I'm not, I'm already, they're already connected to the ventilator there. I'm already breathing for this patient. Or if they're in the recovery area, they're in an area where there is a, 
they're being monitored constantly. All of the the standard monitors are on them. Their heart rate's being monitored. Their breathing is being monitored. Their blood pressure is constantly being monitored. And they're in a recovery area where there is a lot of personnel, trained personnel around between nurses and physicians that are in the, the recovery area. So from your perspective, and and this might be, I, I'm going to apologize if this is, comes across as a trick question, but I think to kind of just, you know, go for the underbelly of kind of the elephant in the room with fentanyl. Is your perspective on kind of the, I think the fear that so many people have with fentanyl and, and you know, people dying from fentanyl use, do you think it's more the fear in terms of like, you know, what causes people to, you know, overdose? The reaction being that they, you know, their breathing becomes, um, as you said, depressed from depending on, you know, dosage or do you think it, I mean, I think we all hear stories about like, you know, fentanyl being um, used in combination with another drug. Is it a combination of perhaps how fentanyl interacts with the drug, like a different drug, you know, a user is using something that is both fentanyl and another drug. Does fentanyl have bad reactions with other drugs or is it just like the real fear that we should have, or maybe not, I don't know if fear is the right word, um, being that it can just create breathing complications for people? Well, I think, so from my, my perspective, Fentanyl, I mean, it is, from my perspective, fentanyl is the, it's, you know, the, uh, there has been, there has been an opioid problem for quite a period of time. Fentanyl is, from a, from a pharmacologic standpoint, um, it's, you know, it's, there's not... It's the same, it's in the same class of medication. It works the same way. It works on the same receptors as these other medications that in the past, you know, when, when there has been like, I mean, how long has there been an opioid crisis for, you know, De- de- decades, it, yeah. decades. So in terms of the, the dangers of fentanyl and in terms of what it can do and the medication and interaction with other medications and whatnot, um, it's it's no different than than all of the other opioid, you know, medications that there have been problems with in the past. You know, it is it works the same way. So, do you think that then it becomes an issue of like circulation, just that it's I more think, accessible, or what, what's your what's your take? I think that there has been a little bit more. I think like you mentioned that there's kind of an alarmist tone right now. And I, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying the, the, um, the, you know, cause I know, I know it's a problem, but it's, it is, you know, it's, it's the same kind of, it's the same kind of medication. I think the reason why that it is, has kind of received so much it's being is it's not a medication that is as prescribed, um, as yeah. other, as other medications, like people don't, you know, people don't have surgery and get prescribed a short, you know, little course of fentanyl to go home with. Whereas other opioids, things like, you know, it's a lot more common for people as outpatients to have prescriptions for um, oxycodone and and, and, uh, yes, more, you know, morphine, things like that. Fentanyl 
the the I mean, there are a couple of indications like patches that people will wear kind of long term to give them like where it's, you know, and, and some chronic pain applications like that. But fentanyl is largely, you know, used inpatient, given IV, uh, you know, whereas it's not prescribed like, you know, you, it's not. Um, so I think that it because it's I think that's a little bit where the alarm where it's becoming more alarming from is it's not something that people have had kind of had heard, you know, like it's not something that that is being it's not a medication that people were as familiar with being prescribed. And, you know, it's not like in am I making sense? Like, I don't know if I am. Yeah, you're making sense. But and in terms of its uh, its re uh, in terms of but in, it has the same it has the same effect profile. Um, I think it's just that it is a something that's a little uh, it seemed a little bit more exotic or something because maybe it's not as you know not it's not something people that are are really prescribed. I wanted to ask you mentioned um the measurement of a microgram and yeah. I don't I've never I don't know what a microgram is. I'm sure it's like a small version of like a milligram, but we live in the United States and we weren't taught a lot of the conversions in terms of measurement. Like I think yeah. anytime I have to cook something and I have to do like an ounce to like pound conversion or whatever, I freak out a little bit. But in terms of a microgram, can you just like give us what that looks like in terms of if I were looking at a microgram of something. Oh, how if big you is want, that? Oh, okay. So where uh, I have the fentanyl that I have gotten used to, both where I did my uh, my training and uh, where I'm, you know, both places that I've I've done my my training so far, the constitutions that we have, the the concentration of that I've gotten used to handling is um, fentanyl is usually 50 micrograms uh, per cc or milliliters. So I'm sure everybody has seen, is familiar with what a syringe looks like and, you know, how much, if you think of like a one milliliter, does that make sense? Like a a syringe with like one, you know, that that I feel like people probably have an idea for what that looks like. Like one milliliter, okay. So typically... The, the concentrations that I have have gotten used to, and I know that different in different countries and and different places will have different you know dilutions and whatnot. But I'm used to uh, it being 50 micrograms per one cc or per one milliliter. What do you? Because I'm assuming that you have to make that like the, what did you just say? Like the dilute yourself. If you're putting in 50 micrograms of something, what does like a microgram? Like, is it the size of like a grain of salt? Is it as oh, big as like oh, rice? So the, like, oh, so okay. So the um the fentanyl. So all of the fentanyl everywhere that I have that I uh all of my exposure to it. It's not. It hasn't come anywhere that you has been to. It comes. It comes in vials already diluted. Okay. So I just have to open the vial and then draw out the medication. So it's already in that concentration of of 50 micrograms per, per one milliliter. Um, there are, but do you know, if you were to look at a microgram, how big that oh, is? Uh, because I keep hearing like, it, there's so many, I'm trying to find the quote. There's, I was looking at this article. Um, and it was like saying that, you know, the amount of basically it distilled down to 
the amount of fentanyl that you could get on like the tip of a pencil could kill someone. And I was mm. like, is, what's your take on that? Is, is the tip of the pencil the biggest, is like the same of a microgram oh. or? That, okay, so that would have, no, <laughs> that would, I guess if we're talking about the, and here, I guess we're talking about like, like, I guess the, the, if you have it in a solid form, I, I don't, I actually, I don't know. Cause I've never, I've never seen it like that. You know, I only, yeah. I know that, and I give, um, like I mentioned, probably typical dosing at a time. I bet, I think most anesthesiologists would say that probably 25 micrograms to a hundred micrograms of fentanyl as, you know, a one-time push, you know, is kind of their, the range that we typically will give what you're talking about there. I, I don't, I don't know. Cause I've never, I've never seen fentanyl in this, you know, I'm assuming in a different form, solid yeah. powder form that, you know, is coming from. And I, if that's probably, you know, I don't know if that is when they're talking about what that's being on, you know, people have access to on the streets. That's something that is then being, you know, supposed to be diluted or, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if you, if you gave me, if you gave me that small amount of whatever that they're describing here and said, how many micrograms of fentanyl is this? I would not be able to tell you because it's only, yeah, I wouldn't know. I've only ever seen it in these, you know, these, these diluted, these vials that, that, you know, they have in the hospital and you just open it and then you draw up and there's no, no dilution. Um, I, you, I you guess know, might, any... oh, um, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to give, you know, cause then you get to like 25 micrograms is less than, um, you know, t- typically what I was talking about would be like 25 micrograms would be like half a, a milliliter. And if you are going to give even less than that, so you wanted to give maybe five or 10, you know, which in like pediatrics, you know, where you're giving very small doses of medications like this, then you might, you might want to dilute it even a little bit further because then you're getting to such a small volume and it's kind of hard to push really small volumes of medications through IVs. So then you might dilute it a little bit further, but was that helpful? Yeah, that was really helpful. Okay. Um, I hope and- people walk away. I was going to say, I hope people walk away from just your response to my question being like, see, doctors don't know everything too. Like you can, you, you, thank you for making us all seem like it's okay for us to not know answers to questions that we have, because you came to like, you answered a question and you gave us some good, like stuff that I didn't know, but you also didn't know what a microgram is. So that makes me feel, feel better about myself. And well, I, will, I just I like the, when they're, you know, they're talking about like, okay, the, this, you know, this is a, I can, if you could tell me, if you could say like, Hey, this is, if you could say here, whatever, I'm assuming they're talking about a powder. I'm assuming they're talking about it yeah. being in a powder there. Yeah. And if you yeah. said like, okay, this is, this powder is this quantity. I could tell you, okay, is that a lot of fentanyl or is that a little bit, but I've never seen it. I've never seen it like that. Like it doesn't come yeah. to us like that it comes in that to us and, and you know deli- exactly exactly i i found the quote the quote was really interesting um it's from it's a direct quote or it's from this article um that i'm going to talk about later oh. but that there's a u.s attorney um for the district of idaho um has the following quote where he says um the drug is extremely addictive he's talking about fentanyl um powerful and lethal fentanyl is 100 times more powerful than morphine 
and 50 times more powerful than heroin. Uh, the direct quote says, if you put a couple grains of salt on a pencil tip, for example, that's the visual we use, that's enough fentanyl to constitute a potentially lethal dose. Um, and so I'm just curious as to how an attorney came up with that that measurement um, and, and, and who who's doing, you know, the converting of that and, and what the weight of that and, would be, honestly. And, see, and, and here, and see, I think, so this is, and this is where I'm, I'm talking about that, like, it is a, I think uh, that statement there, I, I'm, once again, I'm not trying to, you know, to discount this, but like that statement there is a very alarming, you know, like, I think that kind of creates this sort of alarmist, like, and what by, you know, cause if it was, you'd be able to, if you could tell, you know, you could, it, it's, that statement there is trying to, you know, make it seem like, oh, fentanyl, like a little bit can, and, you know, it, it is a, like that statement alone, I think is kind of stirring up some alarmist, you know, it kind of makes it seem, exactly. And I, what I was going to actually, what I was going to get to, what I kind of meant to, to, and I kind of got distracted from it, but what, uh, I think kind of the sentiment right now that when I talk to, because, you know, there are patients that will be, as I'm giving them medications or they want to know what medications we're going to be using. Um, and if you, you know, tell them, oh, I'm get there are, you know, there are definitely people that get very, you can tell that you're, they're very anxious or scared or whatever about fentanyl being used. And I, 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 not, Hey, I, this is, this is not a, in this setting, this is a very, you know, it's, and it's a amongst, it's a, it's a drug that we feel, you know, it is, like I mentioned, the, the profile of it, I'm very comfortable with. Um, and, but it is, there's something about, and I think it's a little bit similar to what I feel like when sometimes there are, you'll talk to patients or people in, or in general, like when I, you know, talk to people about what I do is for a living. And we'll, they'll talk about propofol and propofol because propofol was, you know, the drug that, um, that, uh, Michael Jackson died from and there, then it created, it gave like propofol ended up having this reputation as being something very, very dangerous, which, oh yes. But like, I, you know, it's propofol is most in, you know, in current practice, propofol is used to, for you know, like procedures like colonoscopy on to put people to sleep under general anesthesia. It's a very safe drug, but it has to be known. You have to have know how to use it. And the right kind of person has to be using it in the right situation. You know, like and it's being used to put you to sleep and I know it's going to make you stop breathing, but it's it, or it could make you stop breathing, but that's okay because I know what to do, or I'm intending for you to stop breathing because I'm going to put it in a breathing tube. Like it's, so it's not inherently, right. it, but it has, it is in the right hands. And that is, I think, kind of a similar alarmist or a similar so level of kind of, you know, it's getting this a little bit of a reputation currently because, because of, of, you know, this is, I think it's kind of something that I've sort of a little bit of a similar sentiment. Absolutely. I mean, I think that this question of public hysteria is really interesting 
And I know something that I've read about in some police reports is like cops coming across a large quantity Mm -hmm. of suspected fentanyl and being really scared to have any kind of contact with it or come within like a certain distance of it. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the, um, I guess, idea that's being put forward is even being in proximity to this substance, whether or not it's like in a form to be ingested is dangerous. Yeah. Is there like any legitimacy to that? Uh, not no, like this is, you know, this is your, and granted, granted, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, this is, we're, we're going back to, okay, if they're talking about fentanyl right. and powdered form versus yeah. but like you know i like i i have i draw up fentanyl like all the all the time by myself you know like i mm-hmm. you know i like a big boy it's like a, it's a michigan it is, our parents proud. yeah the, and the most the most dangerous part so where i um where uh where I did residency, well, sometimes, so we, there's sometimes like th- different companies and different, you know, medical, uh, pharma, pharmacology or pharmaceutical companies will produce, you know, you'll get different, their, their vials will look differently, but some of, one of the ones, um, uh, companies that we had, theirs came in like this, it's called like an ampule, like a little glass that you actually have to break the glass off. Like I would have to break the glass and then drop the, it didn't have just a cap. It had like a little glass that you had to break. And I slipped, I cut myself one time on one of these glass and it gave myself like the deepest little cut ever. That's been the most dangerous part of my exposure to fentanyl. Like it's, you know, but it's, it's not, it's, you know, I'm I'm drawing it up every day and nothing, nothing bad has happened. So see this, when I, when I, I think that there's there, for some reason, there is a whole level of like alarm and stigma. There we go. That's what I was going for. There's a kind of a level of stigma attached to it that I don't think it deserves, at least because it is, you know, it's, it's not a drug. I mean, it's, it's not something that people should be using recreationally. You know, it's not, it's, it's, it is, there are, da- it's, you know, it, it can do dangerous things. Um, but it is not something that, that is, you know, there's, it has wonderful, you know, it's something that I use every day very comfortably. Um, but you, you know, it's supposed to be, it's in the, the right time in the right place and under the right circumstances and, you know, monitors and all of that, all of those things. I think it's really important to point out that back to my original kind of why I was interested in doing this just the entire episode on this is that it really is waves it seems like, at least from Kayla and my side of things, the hysteria around drugs and just hysteria around like other things that are kind of deemed either taboo or misunderstood or to some extent scary by society. Um, our little law clerk, our law clerk just put in the chat um, kind of about the alarmist uh, reaction to the AIDS um, epidemic, I think also falls in the same category of just those waves of people freaking out about drugs. I mean, we know that people got really scared um, when cocaine was like a huge drug because people would say that, you know, you could have a heart attack and die from too much cocaine. And then we saw the same thing with heroin where people were um, scared of the overdoses that were happening with heroin. And I think it's also important to point out that you can't really tweeze out, at least it seems like now, 
fentanyl from heroin. It seems like they're still very much piggybacking off of each other. Um, my understanding is that some of the supply of fentanyl, in, at least in my community, um, has heroin in it. Um, and I think that's also just kind of the nature of street drugs is that it can be, you know, a combination of things. But to the point, it, it it's so fascinating to me and, and quite scary that it seems like, you know, there's a really big political and police push on something. And then all of these like laws come into the play and overly prosecute people for a drug. And it just, to my frustration, doesn't seem like we haven't learned that lesson yet. Um, and fentanyl is just the next wave of that. And um, I read an article too that um, I'm trying to find the quote. I wrote it down. It said that um, it said that fentanyl is going to be um, the most prosecuted drug in Idaho. In Oh, it's from that same um, guy from the attorney general's office. It says, Perwitt said 2023 will be the first year where they will prosecute more fentanyl cases than any other type of drug um, in the state of Idaho. And so that's, I think that's just, yeah. And I think that's kind of the reality. I'm seeing that in my county. Um, and, and I just, you know, my, like I said, my first exposure to it was hearing about it in a clinical setting, but also because my mom was so scared of it um, with my brother being around it every day. Um, so yeah, <laughs> and, so, like, and that is like I, that's the that's the part like <laughs> that's see that's Thank like you for laughing about it. <laughs> exactly, like it's yeah, it's uh you know, and I it is it yeah, it's like that's what I'm that's like I think it's just like it's the lack of of you know it's that there that there's I think that there what I'm getting what I exactly kind of what we're trying what you're talking about earlier i think that there's like a level there's like a shroud of like mystery or something or like something around fentanyl as opposed to other opioids that you know people have like that have that there have been you know household names and whatnot and maybe it's because a lot of them sound like each other they have kind of similar names and you can kind of where fentanyl like sounds like something i don't know very different or exotic or whatnot but it's, it's not, you know, it, it's the, it's, it's another, it's another opioid, at, you know, at the end of the day, it is. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Um, I want to pivot real quick. Kayla, I took the liberty of kind of following suit on something you typically do. And I, pull, I wanted to pull some statistics from both of our states. And then I also pulled something from um, Florida because that's where Sean practices. So I kind of wanted to add a little bit of like the hometown stake that I think you oftentimes try to bring on this podcast. And so I found that in, because um, I was wanting to kind of ground the conversation also back to the things that we know in terms of the effects that they're having in our community. Because I think that that is important. I mean, it's important to talk about it in the clinical setting, but it's also really important to ground the conversation as to like why this is a concern. Um, so I found the um, report from the most recent one I could find in Idaho. Um, it's from 2021. Um, and we know that fentanyl um, at least seems to be more um, heavily circulating in, in our communities. But 
The report from 2021 from Get Healthy Idaho, which is a division of the Idaho Department of Health and Wellness, um, they published data that, in, that indicated that 152 deaths were related to fentanyl overdose um, in 2021. Uh, Washington's a little bit more interesting. Of course, we know that Washington not only handles drugs differently than Idaho does, but Washington also has a really interesting approach to um, drug use with uh, kind of Seattle taking a different approach to how they care for their community. Um, but so I found a report that was specific for King County, which is the greater Seattle area. And um, I found this language to be very interesting. It says, since 2019, the number of overdose deaths has grown on an exponential scale, jumping by 20% between 2019 and 2020, and jumping by an additional 39% between 2020 and 2021. By October 15th, 2022, 710 overdose deaths had occurred in King County, surpassing the total number of overdose deaths that occurred in 2021. The recent surge in overdose deaths is driven by fentanyl, which is involved in 70% of all confirmed overdose deaths that have occurred to date in 2022. And then the thing that I appreciated even more about this report was that it included some language in terms of um, populations in the community that seem to be disproportionately hit hard um, within King County. And um, the first point is people experiencing um, an unhoused status or people living in a temporary or supportive housing. Um, the second category is American Indian and Alaskan Native, non-Hispanic and Black non-Hispanic residents. And then communities located in Seattle and South King County. So then it kind of broke down the geographical area of parts of King County had been hit hard too, which is interesting because I'm not sure if it's people that are from those communities or if they, that is where um, the, the tragedy occurred. Um, but I just found it to be interesting that they included language about demographics um, down to not only location, but also some important um, inclusions, I think, in terms of um, communities of color that are disproportionately impacted by um, fentanyl exposure. So I found that to be interesting. And so I wanted to take that approach to just include kind of what's going on in our communities. I know, Kayla, you're in central Washington, so that's not technically your home. Um, but um, No, it's like the opposite of Seattle. They're exactly. like, they, <laughs> exactly. no, absolutely not. But yeah. the, the, Unfortunately. Interesting thing, the interesting thing is that report was published by like the public health of Seattle and King County. And it has just a lot of like really interesting information too, in terms of um, other stuff that was included in their research, which is just very interesting. Um, but, and then Sean um, to Florida and, and it was funny because they, I shouldn't say funny. That's the wrong word. It was ironic because I heard about this, in a meeting that my office had. And we had somebody come and talk to us about drug testing. So say like our client gets a court order that they have to do court-mandated drug testing um, as part of their sentence or maybe part of their conditional release out of custody. Um, and, and I want to talk about that. But um, before I get there, um, the person who came and spoke to us from the testing clinic she oh, mentioned. This is... Sorry, guys. Go ahead. I'm going to have to take this. Sorry. 
this is gonna upset you all. And well, I should just wait because I want your guys' honest reaction on. But Idaho, let me just tell you, is up to some shady shit in terms of the overall response to fentanyl. I mean, we knew that. That was like the reason why I wanted to do this. But I'm just like, I was doing, I was Googling stuff all week and I was just like wanting to just check my computer out my window. Just like, why do I live here? Why why is this state the way that it is? Like question. Just yeah. Yeah. Between that and their crazy abortion shit, that I mean, they're wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm just assuming Idaho's gotta be like conservative Christian Republican. Yeah. Right. Because I've it, never so, been there. So, I don't know anything about it. Southern Idaho is Northern Idaho has um Northern Idaho is interesting. Northern Idaho has kind of a militant population of like people who are very like independent leaning okay. um, and want like the right to carry guns, not from necessarily like the typical Republican standpoint, but more from like a deep distrust of government, I would say. Yeah. And also um, there's a lot of history of like government militias up here. No, it's okay. I was explaining the background of... Well, you can speak to this too, and then I can jump back in it. But how Northern Idaho is very different than Southern Idaho. Oh. And, 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 and not just how, like, how it looks, yeah, how no, it looks but, just, but just like also like politically very yeah. different, culturally yeah. very different. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so it's weird because a lot of people... in Southern happens Idaho, quick. It happens yeah, quick. Like, you you can, get up into the panhandle yeah. and you're like, whoa, I'm in a different culture. Because like Southern it's, Idaho is Utah adjacent. Yes, and then Northern yeah. Idaho is like very, I would say, Montana adjacent. Hmm. And it's kind of like... It's, it's literally though, it's literally like that. It's actually where you cross the... Because Idaho is then two different time zones. So it's literally where you cross that time zone that this it, like, oh, like wow. Pacific, once you're <laughs> once you're in once you're back out of Pacific once you're in mountain time, you're in a different culture. Yeah. Like, there's an, and there's even there's like even a bridge. Like there's a bridge yes. that you go over. <laughs> <laughs> and it's time zones change and Idaho changes. <laughs> oh my changing. goodness. Yeah. The it's literally, what's the what's the river? Is it the salmon river? Is that the river that is <laughs> That or the snake, one of the two. Snake River, yeah. And Idaho becomes a whole different world on the other side of that bridge. The panhandle is very odd. So, and I'm (laughs) up in the panhandle, and it's like Southern Idaho has like crazy Republicans, but also like probably more like Boise also has probably more liberal people than live up in Northern Idaho. But Northern Idaho has like maybe not the same amount of like Republicans, but just like crazy independent leaning people that are like, I want my gun and I want like some crazy conspiracy theorists to become president. Like that's that's Northern Idaho culture. It's weird. So, okay. So, okay. So I was just about, we can jump back in. I was just about to talk to you about Florida. Let me pull up that article in one second. Um, how are you liking Florida? Do you think you'll stick around? No. Um, not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and not, not like Florida's been fine. Um, 
it's like it's not it's not i mean it's not for me that's that's just yeah it's like it is please keep that in the podcast (laughs) (laughs) you give east coast vibes (laughs) and you know not southern per se florida it's just it's um i i don't know it's it yeah, it's just it's just not the right fit. It's not the yeah. It's it's been it's been cool though. Like it's been a, it's been a whole different. Like I've lived everywhere, so I can kind of live anywhere. But if Florida's just been like, oh, all right, this is. It was a, it's been a nice change from Chicago. Like Chicago, you know, it was a cool change of pace and and whatnot. But Florida's not for me. Florida's not it. And like and like and everywhere in Florida, like I've I've tried to like make it to see a good part of the state, and I'm like ah. None of this is really, none of this really is like super up my alley. Um, so Sean, I wanted to talk to you about <laughs> dilazine. Is it dilazine? Am I saying that right? I yeah, as far as far as I know. Yeah. The animal tranquilizer? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So so okay. So here's the article I found. Attorney General Ashley Moody is warning political Wow, Floridians. Why is that so hard to say? Floridians about the flesh-eating zombie drug, xylazine, also known as Trank. Xylazine is a Schedule One controlled substance in Florida, um, and the Attorney General goes on to say Floridians need to be aware that xylazine is making one of the deadliest drugs in history, fentanyl, even deadlier. Xylazine is a sedative and therefore resistant to standard standard opioid reversal treatments such as Narcan. There has never been a more dangerous time to take a chance on any illicit substance, and this drug is only making the problem worse, dot, dot, dot. She goes on. But then it says, according to the DEA, xylazine and fentanyl mixtures have been seized in 48 states, including Florida. DEA lab system reports show that in 2022, approximately 23% of fentanyl powder and 7% of fentanyl pills seized contained xylazine. People who use xylazine may develop severe wounds, including necrosis, the rotting of human tissue that may lead to amputation. According to a recent news report, at least 236 Floridians died last year with xylazine in their system. So, first of all, I don't, I think it's important to know, like, I don't understand why. So, it makes sense because Narcan is only used for opioids right Mm -hmm. so of course it wouldn't have an effect on that but i guess my question is like what do you know about xylazine and and what happens (laughs) if people like what do you know about about xylazine and what happens if people develop the complications from using xylazine like how do they get treated for these wounds that they can get okay so i had to i had to look because xylazine is not xylazine is not you as far (laughs) Xylazine, I'm not. I had to look up what it was and look up the mechanism of action because I didn't. I didn't know it's used. It's not used in, as far at least in America, not used in in humans. So it's it's a vet, it's a veterinary drug. It's a veterinary sedative. Um, the reason why it's so, I mean, aside from what we mentioned, though, the reason why it's dangerous in combination with. Um, any time, like a any medication that in of itself can cause sedation, respiratory depression, that type of stuff. When you put it with another medication that can cause some of the same things, they have like they can potentiate the effects of one another, 
and you get kind of this cumulative effect that would be kind of that's even more so than if you had each of the substance individual you know them putting them together and then the fact that they're both there creates an even bit so this is you know this is it even um you know that and this is and this is something that goes into um you know that i take into account when i'm when i'm giving sedation and I, if i'm going to give a benzodiazepine and fentanyl at the same i have to be conscious of that that hey i'm giving both of these and the fact that both of these are going to be in the the patient system i need to be conscious and aware of that that you know then that because there's the presence of of multiple of these you need to you know the the effects can be greater that the fact that this that xylazine is a is a animal tranquil like a sedative you know heavy animal sedative tranquilite whatever you want to call it that that can cause all of those things in addition to a strong opioid like fentanyl that can all that that's why it's such a dangerous combination together does that make sense yeah yeah that makes sense um, to me. but it's not it is like i the it's a I don't know that much about it because it's not a, it's not used in human medicine, at least in the United States. As far as I, once again, I've I had to I had to look it up and and look up the mechanism of action, um, to to get kind of an idea of of what um, now how it actually the and what were you asking me of what was the there was another part of that question. So if somebody has like a complication for using uh-huh. xylazine. And they develop yeah. this like necrosis, uh-huh. or like me. I don't. I don't even know how that actualizes. So, say you use and it has xylazine in it, and then you start having these wounds. Uh-huh. What are your treatment options? At oh that gosh. Point? Okay. Now we're now we're getting a little out of. Hold on. I'm gonna really quickly. I'm gonna look up why the because we're we're getting out of um. Now we're getting out of, my, out of my wheelhouse. So I'm going to look and see if I can try and figure out how these wounds develop. So hold on two seconds. Let me just do a... I'm always doing that. I'll just say, I found this out because as I was saying, we had um, a person from um, one of the testing facilities come in and she was saying that this is happening in our county. Our county has xylazine in some of the um, supply because people are testing positive, I guess, for xylazine or she found out from other somehow. And so we were alerted to this. And so um, it would be nice to know because sometimes, I mean, Kayla, you know, back to our point of just being an attorney for people, we're not just an attorney. We're also people who look out for people's best interests. And so say you go see a client and they have been using and they have these medical conditions, like hopefully jail medical if they're in custody is taking care of this, but say they're out of custody, maybe the you know, at least in my line of work, maybe they don't have health adequate health insurance. Like, what do they do? And so you're not only dealing with like the concern of like maybe they're facing criminal charges for their substance use, and maybe they're also having to deal with their recovery, but also maybe they're having like other weird complications that we haven't thought of. And and what do they do? Because if it, I'm assuming based on what I just read, that it can become extremely severe. And then now, you know, you're adding medical stuff into somebody's life that they're having to figure out. And as attorneys, we don't, we don't have that knowledge to pass on. And then, you know, you, I find out all the time that clients of mine are in the hospital for whatever. And it, it, it's, I think, just a small portion to only focus on 
people's the charges that they have and maybe their like substance use. It's okay, a big, so. it's a bigger picture than that. So right, so because I was trying to, oh sorry that I'm I'm like, top it like just so that I'm you guys know what I'm because I of course like anytime that you inject something, their chance of you developing, um okay, severe wounds. Okay. I'm trying to trying to like figure out what it is about xylazine that causes these wounds specifically. And Sean, if you can't find anything, that's okay too. But I just was curious as to what's going like it's wild, but that's the reaction that people can have from it. And it looks like one of the reasons why that this is it like uh that it'll be added because it can potentiate the um the high like from fentanyl. Um yeah. Like it can make it, it can make it last longer. Um, so I guess that's the okay. So it's it's in the injection portion. Kayla, you can jump to something else. Go ahead. No, oh, no, I okay. mean, no, you're. It's fine. Um, yeah, I was gonna say I haven't heard of xylazine coming up in my community. Um, what I hear a lot about are the blues. Do you hear about yeah. blues, Addy? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I definitely explain it. I mean, I don't, it, I think it's just a pill, right? It's, it's a fentanyl pill that is blue <laughs> and people or, refer or to it as, as the blue. I'm going to say, I don't think this is like extremely, I was going to say, I don't think it's, this is extremely um, correct language, but they're also, I think, frequently referred to as Mexis, um, at least in my community as well. So um, I don't know if that's what they refer to them as in your community either. And this, and we're talking about this is like this is like pills, like fentanyl pills. This is mm-hmm. and see this yeah. this alone is something that I like because it's not we like in the in the you know we don't give it's not like given as a as a pill. Like I I've never seen like oral fentanyl. You know, yeah. it's like um, I guess. Uh, yeah, and in in our line of work, people can use fentanyl in different forms, um, and and usually it's it's pills and okay, and they and it and, yeah. and not that injection isn't common either, but I think probably pills. My understanding is that they're probably cheaper to to purchase, um, and you have different ways of of using them if you have pills, and they're probably easier to transport with you as well but um they're usually referred to as blues or m's or mexis in my community although i do know that there was some alarm reaction from at least the local police department because it seemed like we got a supply of fentanyl that was like skittle colored allegedly i didn't oh yeah dude i've heard that same yeah yeah Yeah. kids the kids think of the children think Mm. of the children it's gonna make it into their halloween (laughs) what if they think it's skittles Right. So that's the concern. So I kind of want to just like bring this full circle and just say that, at least from my perspective, I think that we're kind of failing each other with how, I think just like as a culture, we're approaching the the opioid crisis. And, and like I said, we've like been down this road before. It's nothing new, as you said. And, you know, I think, you know, Kayla, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we're trying to do our part to kind of um, humanize drugs, really, uh, and people who 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 use. 
and, and add their narrative to um, and, and their history and their backstory to what like if they get prosecuted for for drugs, right? But I think beyond that, it is you know a public health crisis. It is all of these other things, and it's also just I don't think we're like taking care of each other, really healing the community by our approach to it, and as we've all talked about, our like alarmist reaction to it. So from your standpoint, because you're you know coming at this from a very different perspective in terms of like what's the path forward and that's a very like packed in question right because i think that everyone wants to know what i think that's the question that we all are coming at and i think that's why just prosecuting drugs is so fragmented because it doesn't seem like we have the right solution and it doesn't seem like we have the right solution for like rehabilitative services for people either but from, from your perspective, in terms of just like takeaways from this conversation or like a little piece of it, of this really big issue, mm-hmm. what is something that you think we should be doing better or what is something that we should be considering? And, you know, to Mining Kayla's practice and also to our listeners, like what are things that we should be implementing into our practice and, and the way we interact with our clients or with each other in talking about? Well, I think it needs to be that I think fentanyl, it needs to, in terms of when you're as an attorney and you are, you know, like you mentioned, talking to clients, talking to others, you know, in your profession, I think having a like an understanding of what this med, what this substance actually is. And not viewing it as this, I mean, it is, yes, like it is, it's a, it is, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a medication that, or, you know, a drug that has potentially some very dangerous side effects. Um, But to not, to not think of it, you know, to really, to understand what it is and that they're, you know, to, to not view it as this substance that is you know it's it is like fentanyl is not uh you know it's i'm i mean we're you know i'm like thinking about apples and oranges here but it's it's you know fentanyl is not like ecstasy and molly you know these are not you know medications that they're or you know drugs that are that they're just recreational you, you know there's like fentanyl is used clinically and it's it is i think it's important to understand that so that you i think to kind of take away a little bit of the stigma or this kind of like mystery that we mentioned or kind of this sort of that part of it that is attached to it that i kind of really don't understand where that came from um it needs you know it is it is a ser- it's a serious problem it's the most you know it feels like it's the most recent these kind of the the opioid crisis sort of feels like it kind of comes in these waves and there's you know now the the what the the most prevalent and the one causing the highest number of deaths is now is now fentanyl and that that number has gone up significantly in the past couple of years um and that's you know there that is that's extremely sad and scary and um you know there I don't know enough you know of course I don't know the ins and outs of you know how all of the supply gets to in the hands that it does and why that's you know the, 
the numbers have changed so much over the past uh, couple of years, but it is, it's a problem. It, like the opioid crisis continues to be a problem. This is just the newest iteration of it. Um, but I think understanding, um, having a little bit more understanding of what exactly this substance is, I think. And so that when you, you know, you can, when you talk about it, you're a little bit more familiar with really what it is. Um, I think that is helpful. I would say that I don't think that uh, it's from my standpoint, um, it being, and I don't know enough about the legal system or anything to, to but for it being prosecuted, um, you know, I don't, if, if, is it something that seems like it's being handled differently than other opioid like is does it feel, feel like it's being prosecuted more harshly or um is that part of what you feel like the kind of the issue is is that it's being handled differently than other drugs and controlled substances in the past does that feel like it's is that something that you feel like you're seeing i think my concern is that anytime there's fentanyl involved in the case they use the fact that there's this alarmist response to fentanyl to justify higher sentencing recommendations. There, okay. And, and that scares that scares me. And I don't think that that, um, or you know, to or just you know, different requirements so that people don't just get standard drug testing that they have to have drug testing that includes the fentanyl panel, which then um, that's a whole different thing. So um, okay, it, then, it seems like fentanyl is getting very like separated. And I think it's just yeah. because there's a lot of political power behind pushback on fentanyl at the moment. Yeah. And that I, from my, you know, from where I, in my experience and my use with it, you know, like it, it is something that like I, we've talked about extensively, like it's a medication that I, you know, not in the, not in the forms that people are, you know, I'm not giving fentanyl pills to people and whatnot. I'm, you know, when I give it, it's, I'm giving intravenous injections, um, you know, uh, in, in a very controlled <laughs> monitored atmosphere. Um, and, but so from my standpoint, I don't, you know, it's, it's like, why, you know, why is this being viewed as such as kind of separate entity? Um, and it's, and that part, that part is, that part's confusing. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. Um, I don't know enough about the legal side of it, but from you know, I, for me, I, I, I don't understand why would we view this any differently than, you know, any other opioid, um, you know, why is fentanyl thought about any differently than, than oxycodone, oxycontin, heroin, you know, all of those, that type of stuff. Um, or it, like, it's, I, I don't, I don't understand it being thought about as such a specific kind of separate thing. Um, and I don't, uh, and I think, I think if we, I think if everybody just kind of understood a little bit more about it and that might kind of take away some of, some of that part. Um, and I also think that, you know, it would, uh, anytime that somebody, you know, like I, like we talked about, if I have a, a patient that that wants to talk about it, you know, they find, find out that, oh, I might give them fentanyl or they ask me, are you going to give me fentanyl? I do my best to try to educate them 
uh, and a way of, you know, making them feel like, like, hey, this is, you know, this is, this is something that does, you know, this is not to be taken lightly. And it's, you know, it is, of course, something that is, you know, has the potential to be very dangerous. And, but it's, you know, there, it is uh, this kind of, it's almost like they are afraid that I'm going to give them a little, you know, a little dose of fentanyl and it's going to, it's going to be a lethal thing. And it's, you know, it's, and that part, uh, when I, when I kind of find that, that people having that reaction or that sentiment, like, I know that it's kind of made me seem like, oh, there's something else going on out there that's kind of different. That's different. You know, people don't ask about, you know, it's kind of a, people get a little bit more anxious than if I, you know, said, oh, I'm going to, we'd give you a, a similar medication in that same class. Like something about fentanyl right now is really kind of making people scared. And I, the, and I, and that, I feel like there's some kind of parallel between that and then what you, maybe you're seeing in your line of work. Um, and that part, I don't really, really understand. And I don't know if it's anything that is, uh, you know, it's, it that I, I find very strange. I'm going to toss you one last bigger, like, soft pitch and, and mm-hmm. you can choose to swing at it or not. But yeah. in terms of our listeners who are not legal professionals, who are just normal people who are interacting with, you know, living in a world and in a, in a culture and a society where there is the opioid epidemic and surely they've probably had some exposure to it in one way or the other. In terms of how they can best be in a community that is working on addressing this from a standpoint where like, you know, public health is involved, but also to your point, it sounds like empathy and just understanding. What do you think like the, the average person in terms of like any practices or just like perspective shift they can have when they like hear about fentanyl? How should they go about like any steps they can do to kind of combat some of the alarmist response to it or just like being a person that is genuinely concerned about the well-being of of another person in terms of like potential other like opiate users in our communities? Uh, Well, I think that there, I think like, I said, I think realizing that, okay, if you've had surgery within, you know, past insert period of time, since like, it's that you have, you've probably received some fentanyl, whether, you know, during your surgery in the recovery room, you know, you probably have zero recollection of it, but you probably, so it's not this, uh, you know, to not view it as this this mysterious substance that's going, you know, that, uh, I think, I think that shift would be helpful. Um, but also I think that, um, that there is, um, there's a, uh, with these, you know, opioids are, they definitely treat pain and they do that job very well, but there is a whole host of other complications or other, you know, effects that they come with. Um, and that's why, uh, 
uh, I think everybody, there has been, there's kind of been a shift among, um, uh, you know, that there, because there was a period of time not that long ago where opioids were definitely being overprescribed. Um, and now there has been a shift because of, you know, the opioid crisis and, and, you know, opioids aren't being prescribed like that anymore. And it's not just doctors are just not prescribing them less because it's not that they want, they don't want to get in, you know, it's, it's that, Hey, I speaking from somebody that's an anesthesiologist, um, who, when patient, I'm taking care of somebody that is on opioids chronically that with a long history of opioids, you see the effects of, okay, this person's pain tolerance pathways are different. You know, these are, they are like, it's more difficult to control their pain because they've been on opioids for a period. So it, you see these effects that they're, um, you know, that you see the, the this, these are the parts about being on opioids for a long time that are bad, that make, you know, that come with challenges. So that's, I think people also need to, you know, to, to be aware of the fact that like opioids aren't just dangerous and bad because of, you know, they can, they can, um, you know, these, these events in people and deaths. And of course, you know, that's bad, but also like even long-term where somebody is taking them and it's safe and whatnot down the road, it becomes, there are other challenges that come with it. And so I think people also need to understand that in both of anybody that is, um, you know, taking those kind of medications for the, themselves or anybody that is, or knows somebody or just kind of having an awareness of it's kind of the bigger picture of that. And also that it also needs to be, um, that needs, that also comes with some, that pay, people that might have had an opioid history or things like some, you know, people also need to be sensitive to that. Like it is a, yeah. it really is something that I see firsthand. Like it is, it changes people like their physiology, their, their pain pathways. Like it's a real, it's a real thing. Um, and it, and it creates challenges. And so I think people need to both be aware of it. And then also, especially physicians, we need to know, like, you, we need to be understanding of that as well. And I think people also need to, because there can be a little bit of a stigma associated with patients, anybody that's on opioids long, long term or has an opioid use history. Um, and, and I think people need to be sensitive to that as what, you know, as well. It's, it is the, they are, it's a, it's a very complicated, like there's a, it can, uh, in terms of, you know, as a class of medications, they are, they're, they're complicated and they are, you know, there's, there's, there's reasons that they're, they're not great to be on long-term for, you know, these, these kinds of reasons, but sometime, you know, and they're the nature of, of it's a, it's a different landscape than it was before. And there are people, you know, it's, it is, it's a tough, there's not a clear cut thing, but I think it, I think everybody, if everyone is just a little bit more, um, kind of familiar and empathetic and empathetic, both, yeah. yes, both, both on, you know, the side of, of physicians as well as people on, you know, outside of medicine. I think it, it just uh, having a little bit more of a, 
a bigger a greater understanding of the kind of the big picture of it, I think would would help everybody. I don't know if that's a great answer, but no, and I appreciate it, and I think that it's true. I think that it is incredibly sensitive to want to talk about just I think, and I appreciate you for being here and wanting to talk about this and everybody in in this chat because it is hard to talk about something that just seems so sad and also just so invasive in people's lives and has really destructive outcomes to people's sense of community and you know family and friends and i appreciate you know it's a bigger picture than just like somebody is a single use of fentanyl or somebody having like even a, a substance abuse disorder it's there's, there's a lot more to unpack with that so i appreciate your insight it's definitely not one that I bring to the table that is the other B plate child. It is not me that brings that perspective. And, um, and yeah, I just, I wish I understood medicine in the way that you do. So, so thank you for sharing with me. Of course. And thank you very much for having me. I hope, uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. This is like a, you know, something very outside of my, my day to day, which I appreciate. And I, you know, learn, I mean, just in hearing, you know, listening to you guys communicate with each other as a whole, you know, like all kinds of stuff that I don't understand. And I just, you know, learned a couple things just from listening to you guys talk to each other. So I, you know, thank you for letting me be a part of that. And, um, I don't know. Um, I think there was, I apologize for anything that maybe, uh, was not, I think I had maybe not clear cut answers for some of your questions. So, but I hope I was able to give, I was able, I hope I was able to give some kind of insight. No, I, I think you did a great job. Yeah. We can't thank you enough for being here, Sean. And we hope that you're able to have a relaxing rest of your evening, despite being on call. I, I hope you don't get many yeah. more calls. <laughs> you must really be just like the big brother of the year for coming on my podcast when you're on call. Like everybody else's sibling, step it up. The gold standard has been set. <laughs> not on call and jumping on your podcast <laughs> reassess so so thank you so much for being here and of course. Uh, it's also three hours ahead where you are compared to me so um i just i owe you but um yeah thank you like seriously um and uh thank you for coming into this space i think it is important to also note for the podcast that um i, I, I talk about it all the time how cool it is that this so Kayla and I are doing this with not only each other, but the people that have jumped on board to help with this project are also cool friends throughout different parts of our life. The original design for our logo was actually mocked up by one of Sean's friends that he met in medical school, who's now also one of my friends, and she's a doctor. So um, there's been kind of some weird parallels of, of medicine kind of coming into our work. And it's really cool that all of these people that I know kind of introducing to other people that I get to kind of lean on and have helped me with stuff and and so shout out to that community that um this having you on the podcast is just an extension of and having um your friends sharing them with me an extension of and you coming and being in the space with my friends is it's very cool so thank you of course thanks for having me and uh have a good rest of your evening and thanks for being patient while i had to hop off a few times i appreciate it thanks sean yeah good night sean you're welcome. Okay, take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. We absolutely loved having Addie's brother, uh, Dr. Sean, on the podcast. He taught us so much. And we look forward to you joining us next week. So thank you so much. And cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>